Would you take your Bible and uh, head over to Hebrews chapter number 8? And uh, we finished up chapter number 7. We did Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, if you could put it in a single word, uh, chapter 7 would be the, well, I guess it wouldn't be a word, but a single idea. It would be the priesthood of Jesus through the lineage of Melchizedek. And so he's made a priest forever after, maybe not the lineage of Melchizedek, I apologize, but the order of Melchizedek. And so we used that illustration. Um, it, wasn't me, it wouldn't be last week. It would be the week before. We had Brother Stensis with us on Sunday last week. And what a blessing that was. What a timely blessing that was. And, and I'll say more about it in the uh, evening meeting, but seeing a partnership that, man, that's, we want a partnership. And we want to partner with the Stensis family. We want to go do our thing and, and go be responsible for missions as a church ourselves. But partnerships are also an extremely uh, potent way to accomplish global evangelism. But last week, we were together with Brother Stensis. The previous week, we did Hebrews chapter number seven. And that's where we saw uh, this almost, we use the illustration of another road in the woods. If you've ever been driving on an old dirt road out in the woods, and sometimes you see that other road on the other side. You never saw where it came from. You don't know where it's going, but it kind of keeps appearing. And uh, that is the priesthood of Melchizedek throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. It appears in Genesis, and then it appears again in a prophecy through David uh, in the Psalms that he was going to bring forth a king forever and a priest forever. And then finally, we find Jesus be, uh, coming. And then we really don't even, there's not a lot of connection in the ministry and life of Jesus until you get to the book of Hebrews where the author comes and asserts that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, the reason for that, that road in the woods, if you will, is because the Aaronic priesthood is, is not a dead end. I thought about this. I think we use the, 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 the phrase a dead end road. Not exactly a dead end road as much as it is just a loop. And, uh, and here's what I mean by that. Year after year, they'd come to the same place. Year after year, the Aaronic priesthood would come to Yom Kippur where they'd offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people year over year. But in the same, a year from now, they'd come to the same spot. And so it's just a circular loop that could never bring you to God is that Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic family could never get you to God. And yet Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek could take us straight into the Holy of Holies and give us access. And so really that's the picture of Hebrews chapter number seven. Now chapter number eight, we're gonna jump in and it's gonna get more um, uh, specific to, to the temple. And so we talked about how the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than and we've seen some of that. Jesus is better than Aaron, and Jesus is better than the law of angels, and Jesus is better than Moses. And so this morning, we're really going to jump into the next kind of thought process that Jesus is better. He ministers in a better temple or a better tabernacle, a better place where sacrifices and better sacrifices and final sacrifices are made. That's going to be Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9. And so uh, we'll try to move through. Um, we don't need to stop and, and uh, understand good portions of the text. It really preaches itself. And so we'll see some of that this morning. But let's jump into chapter number 8 and verse number 1. He says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Now, that, that's a huge statement. Um, really what the author just said, all the stuff I've talked about, I'm about to tell you what the sum total of my heart for Hebrews is. And so he's going to say, all of what I'm going to say can really be summed up in the next couple words or next couple phrases. So let's look at that. Now, the things which I have spoken, this is the sum. We have an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. 
So he said, if I could sum it all up, the entirety of the book of Hebrews, and listen, we know the book of Hebrews is, com- is, a, is a complex book. The book of Hebrews has a lot of facets to it. There are a lot of topics that the author is trying to discuss. And he says, listen, if you add up the sum of it all, if you add up the priesthood and you add up Melchizedek and you add up, you know, Hebrews chapter six and, and you add up the, uh, the law of angels, you add up all that I have said, this is the sum of it. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of, uh, of the majesty in the heavens. So he says this, what I'm trying to get to you Hebrews is that we have a high priest who is seated in the heavens with God the Father. He is sufficient and he is better than anything and everything we could have ever had. So all the depth and complexity of this book leads us to this particular truth that we now have a better high priest who made better sacrifices in a better temple that gave us a secure eternal redemption for us. And so we have the high priest who is the highest of authorities, which is is amazing. So really what he's, he's trying to present to us on the front end of this chapter is saying, hey, he is not only the high priest, but he's also the highest of authorities. So what he did is settled. What he did is finished. And you're going to find this phrase. I want you to be on the lookout for it. Maybe if you can count it, that'd be great. I, I, I don't have the particular number, but you're going to find in chapter eight and chapter nine, the word once over and over and over again, that he did it once. And again, every time you see the word once, here's what I want you to think, eternal security, that it's done one time. Didn't need to be the circle year over year over year over year. He did it once. He was one time sacrificed. There's no more need for salvation, no more need for sacrifice. And so be mindful of that. So he says, the sum of it all is we have the highest authority who is our high priest, who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities, right? But he was without sin. Look at verse number two, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Now that's a big theme that chapter eight is going to deal with. He said, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Now, if you're saying there's a true tabernacle, then you're implying that there is a, I don't want to go so far as to say false tabernacle, but an insufficient tabernacle is certainly uh, the, the intention he's going for. So there's a true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now, if you'll remember, part of the Levitical responsibility is every time they'd move in the wilderness, right? Those trumpets would sound, the, the cloud would move, or uh, the, the children of Israel would follow, right? Uh, and every single time they'd stop at a new place and that pillar of cloud would stop, they would have to set up the tabernacle. Man's hands would pitch a tabernacle. Well, Jesus is not a minister of the tabernacle pitched by man's hands, but a minister of the tabernacle pitched by God. Now, He's using some imagery here, but it really, imagery is not even the right word. There actually is a better tabernacle that Moses saw, and you'll see that in Exodus in just a minute. So um, this is important to recognize that the tabernacle down here, pitched by man, is and was always a shadow of what Moses saw. Moses was shown something and then said, now make it after that pattern. And you'll see that verse in just a second. And Jesus is the minister, not of the pattern, not of the one it was patterned, uh, rather, Jesus was the minister of the original, not of the one that followed the pattern. Okay. So look at verse three. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. He said, so high priest, the function of a priest was to offer sacrifices. And since Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, it's reasonable whereof it is of necessity that this man, Christ, have somewhat also to offer. Verse four, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. I love it. I love it. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus is ministering in a better tabernacle. And if he was on earth, 
He wouldn't be needed to be a priest because they already have priests. There's already people offering lambs and there's already people who are killing the goats. There's already people who are making the annual sacrifice. And so if Jesus were a minister of the tabernacle on earth, he wouldn't be needed because they're already doing it. They didn't need another priest. And why didn't they need another priest? Because it was a loop. It wasn't going anywhere. But Jesus ministers elsewhere. So he didn't come as a priest. He came as a lamb. Did you notice that? We talked about that, that Jesus didn't come under the priesthood of Aaron. He wasn't born in the tribe of Levi. He was born into the tribe of Judah, which is a ruling class. Out of Judah would come the king. But he also came not as a priest in the terms of the Levitical law, but he came as the lamb to be sacrificed and to make one sacrifice for all. Look at verse five. Who serve unto the example of, Uh, and shadow of heavenly things. So earthly priests serve as an example and the shadow of heavenly things. Now, real quick, a shadow, you can see it right here. This shadow may bear the mark of my hand. It is not my hand. The very substance of the thing is the real thing. That's just a shadow. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to it. But in verse number five, it says, who serve unto, uh, unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, verse five, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now, if you'd like to, you can keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 8 and jump back to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, and I would encourage you, if you want to do some homework, to go and read the whole chapter and the chapters prior and post, chapter 25, where God's speaking to Moses and he's giving him the example of how he's going to build the tabernacle. But he says this in Exodus 25, 40. Here's what God says to Moses. Look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. So so follow me here. Moses is on the mount. He sees God. God's explaining to him. And he shows him the very substance of the thing that Moses is to make the shadow of. It's not the thing itself. There is a tabernacle, as it were, in heaven, and I want to be loose with that. There is a mercy seat, and there is much of the similar things in heaven. But the idea is that God says, hey, I'm showing you something, and then on earth I want you to make that with the the sons of men. But it is simply a shadow. It is not the substance of the very thing. Shadows, again, have no substance. They are simply representative of the thing that has substance. So this tabernacle, this place uh, that was supposed to be a, if you'll remember what God called it first, it was a, in the days of Jesus, it was a temple. Prior to the temple, it was a tabernacle. When it was originally instituted, it was called the tabernacle of, does anybody know? Meetings. It was the place where God and man would meet. Now, it's a modified place from what the garden used to be. The garden was where God and man could walk face to face. But now in the tabernacle, the presence of God could dwell with men, though behind a curtain, because man and God could not be in close proximity without man dying because of his unjustness, because of his unholiness. And so the presence of God was modified, hidden behind a curtain, where one man could walk in and only for a moment and make a sacrifice and go back out. So there was a modified way where God and man could dwell. So this place, this tabernacle or temple, was supposed to be a place where God and man could dwell. Now, you're going to see in a second, this, this earthly tabernacle, this shadow, is the shadow of the substance. Now, I want to ask you just a quick question. What did Jesus say was the temple that he could destroy in three days and build it back up? Himself. The place where God and man could dwell. 
the meeting place between heaven and earth. the, The earthly tabernacle was a symbol of Jesus' physical presence here on earth. Now here's the problem. Think about the Jewish mindset. One of the listed reasons when Pilate is trying to get Jesus kind of off the hook, as it were, one of the listed reasons is that they, they, they say to Pilate, you have to crucify him. He said he could destroy the temple. They hated Christ because he said he would destroy the shadow of the actual substance. He was the substance. They were worshiping the shadow, and not the very substance. So he is better than the shadow. And why does this matter to us? We're like, yeah, that's obvious. But to them, this is their whole, the shadow is their worship system. Their shadow is everything. It's Aaron, it's Moses, it's all the laws. It's the tabernacle itself. It's what they worshiped. And they missed the very thing it was representing when he himself showed up as the bridge between heaven and earth, as the God with man, Emmanuel, here on earth, peace on earth. All of that is the picture here. So again, this is the sum of the author's intent. He said, this is the sum of it. That, that, that Jesus came to be with us as a better and more authoritative high priest and temple and tabernacle. Verse number six. But now he, uh, hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent than the high priest. By how much also he is the mediator, this is so big, of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, this is really important. A, a priest does not make covenants with God. Okay, hold on. Moses, as a mediator, made covenants. Well, God really made covenants with Moses. God makes covenants with the mediator. A mediator, so you got two people, right? And the mediator is the go-between. They're negotiating both parties. God, back in Exodus, told the people, if you'll obey all the things of this book, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. The children of Israel, you'll remember at the base of Mount Sinai, said, yeah, we'll do it. So the mediator sprinkles blood on the people and sanctifies the book and says, okay, God, this covenant is brought back together. Now, priests don't make covenants. Priests fulfill covenants. Priests were the ones who would go and make sacrifice because of the covenant. Their whole entire office was based on the covenant, though they themselves could not make covenants. So here's what the Bible just told us about Jesus. is not only is he a high priest and a better high priest, a more authoritative high priest, he's not just a priest. He's a mediator who makes a better covenant. So not only is he the high priest after Melchizedek, he is also the mediator who is bringing in a better covenant based on better promises. He is the go-between between God and man. So again, from this perspective, where we're looking at the tabernacles kind of in view and Moses at the Mount Sinai kind of in view and the sprinkling of blood is kind of in view, you and I with the New Testament and the Holy Spirit can see all of this was just a shadow of things to come. All of the sprinkling of blood and, and all of the, even the, the instruments in the tabernacle would be sanctified by blood and the building itself was sanctified by blood and all of these images are shadows, but not the very substance itself. The very substance itself came to earth in Bethlehem in the person of Jesus. And he's not only just a priest, he's a mediator who's gonna bring in a better covenant. Look at verse seven. For if the first covenant had been faultless or capable, then should no place have been sought for a second. If all that the shadow was, was sufficient, there'd be no need for another priest or another mediator to make a better covenant based on better promises. If it was enough, there'd be no Jesus. Now again, put yourself in the mind of a first century Jewish Christian who's struggling to figure out who they are now. Am I a Jew or am I a Christian? 
Am I, am I still supposed to go make sacrifice? You remember when Paul comes back at the very end of his free ministry, at the end of his missionary journey, he comes back to, G, uh, to, uh, to James and the church in Jerusalem and they send him to go make sacrifice? So you're a Jew over here and you're like, am I still supposed to make sacrifices? Like, is this thing still standing? Now it got really easy in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed, right? You're not gonna go make sacrifices, it's gone. But in that 70 years, I guess it'd be 40 year time frame. What are you supposed to do? Am I a Jew or am I a Christian? And really, if you could see the book of Hebrews, you'd understand it better. Oh, all that was just a shadow. All that was just representative. It was fulfilled in the person of Jesus and a better mediator and better promises. Verse number eight, for finding fault with them or that first covenant, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is really important. We got to pay close attention because there are a lot of ways you can get off in the weeds here. Um, but what he is saying is uh, God set out to make a new covenant with Israel, with Judah. Now, this is, I'm going to cherry pick here for just a second. You're just going to have to hold on until we get to the text. The old covenant in the next couple of verses, he's going to say the Jews, they've, they've negated it. They've, they've fallen out of it. They've, they've voided that original contract or that original covenant. They could not keep it. They did not keep it. Go back to when Moses said, hey, will you accept all the things of this law? And they said, yeah, we'll do every single one of them. And they didn't. And so God says, I want to make a new covenant with you. Now, real quick, that new covenant you're going to see quite clearly is this New Testament. This portion of the Bible that God makes a new covenant and a new testament and the death of a testator, all that's in this chapter. And he says, I want to make a new covenant with you, but understand that's a covenant he's already made with all the Gentiles. So what he's saying is you voided your first covenant. I'm inviting you into the second covenant. In fact, and I know I'm cherry picking right now, but I've already made this covenant with all the world. Now I'm inviting you into the covenant, which is opposite of the first one. The first covenant was made to them, supposed to be open to everyone else, but they never did. And so now they're kind of on the outside looking in. And God says, no, I, I've got another covenant I want you to be a part of. I, I'd like you to be saved. My, my heart and prayer for Israel, that they might be saved. You go back to Romans 9 and 10. All of this goes together. Look at verse number nine. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out, of the, uh, out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. They broke that covenant and therefore released God from the responsibility of honoring that covenant. And so God sets forth to make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. Now, again, that doesn't mean just Israel and Judah because God, you'll see in the coming verses, God's already made that covenant with all of the world. And now he's trying to invite them into the all the world covenant. And it's kind of, again, a flip from the Old Testament. Look at verse number 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. That is the exact phrase you find in the book of Revelation where God speaks to the entirety of the world. He says, I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. So God is inviting them into this salvational covenant, not just a national election, but a salvational covenant. And so listen, God's desire is that Israel would be saved. There's no way around that. This book is written to Hebrews who have already violated that covenant and the covenant made to their fathers, they've already breached. And so now God is on the other side, sending a specific book through inspiration to the Hebrew people saying, no, I want you in this covenant that I've already made with all mankind. So again, there's no room for anti-Semitism there. You can't read this book of the Bible and say, God hates the Jews. That's certainly not the case. God desires to be to them a God and to be to them a people, but he also desires that of you and I. He also desires, you'll see that of the Ephesians. You'll see that in the second hour this morning. Every place you go, God is trying to enter mankind into this covenant with himself. Uh, but notice this new covenant 
Um, and, and it's a bit of a, I'll tell you ahead of time, it's a bit of a, a juxtaposition against their standing in the Old Testament and their standing in the New Testament. Notice what he says. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from, last, from the least to the greatest. So this, this covenant is going to be fulfilled someday, and all men are going to know who Jesus is. There won't be a need for Jews to go around saying, hey, do you know who the Lord is? Do you know who the Lord is? Now, again, I think contextually, and I think all the surrounding scriptures support this, this is talking about in the final day when King Jesus is here and he is our God and we are his people, there won't need to be a Levitical priesthood that says, let me teach you about God because Casey Trudell is going to know about God. I'm going to know him as I am known. There won't be a need for a group of people, a nationality of people who are going to teach other people about God because he will be right there. He will be our God and we will be his people. And so in that final day in heaven, there's no need for a group of people to teach the rest of the people because all men know it. it the, the, the knowledge of God is already in our minds. Keep reading, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities while I remember no more. So again, God desires to be merciful to this people who neglected his first covenant. Verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, and now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So he says, listen, we're, 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 especially at the writing of this book, we're in the place where the old covenant is waxing old and it's ready to vanish away and you need to be saved. It's not some national election. It's not some chosen people. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've read it before and studied it before. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the father. Just because you were born as a people doesn't mean that you inherit the father now. There's a new covenant. The old one waxes old. We're inviting you into it. My desire is to bring you into a new covenant, a covenant I made with the whole world. I want you to be a people to me and me to be a God to you. Verse number one of chapter nine. Look at that if you would. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. So real quick, and I think we have, we got like four minutes. So I'll try to go as far as I can. We may have to back up. Now he's going to go back. He started talking about this tabernacle. Then he went to the people and said, listen, this isn't it. This was a shadow. You're supposed to come to me and not to my stuff. You're supposed to come to me. And now he's going to go back to the stuff. He's going to go back to that tabernacle and show how Jesus fulfills it. For verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. So remember, he just said the Jews aren't going to have this heavenly responsibility of teaching everyone about God because God will be there. Now he says, hey, and in the old covenant, you have this responsibility and divine ordinances and responsibilities, but you're not going to now. Look at verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, uh, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubims of gold shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. He says, I'm not going to go into all the details. Verse number six. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. He said, you had jobs to fulfill in this old covenant. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So the common priest could go into the places where the snuffers were and the showbread, but only the high priest could go into the second holiest of all. Verse eight, and the Holy Ghost, this signifying, so it's a shadow. This is what he was signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So he says here, 
this, this whole system was because man couldn't get to God. But now man can get to God. The Holy Ghost was teaching us you couldn't get to God. Now, real quick, sidebar, whoop, step out of the book. There's an indicator here that this book may have been written after the fall of the temple um, because it talks about when it was yet standing. It seems to be past tense. There are other places where it seems to be maybe present tense. It doesn't really matter. It would affect the authorship argument. If it was written after AD 70, um, Paul would have been dead, so I would have been right. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just playing. Look at verse number nine, which was, past tense, a figure for the time then present. So that tabernacle was for the time it stood, a symbol. So again, maybe suggesting that it no longer stands at the writing of the book. Uh, Verse number nine, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So that's important. He says, in this, not a dead end road, but a circular loop, Every year, it would make the outside clean, but it couldn't purify the heart because the high priest would go in and he'd still go in with a pure, with an impure heart and he'd come out with an impure heart, but it could make him ritually clean for a little while. Verse number 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washing and carnal ordinances. Don't think fleshly, just think earthly. Imposed on them until the time of reformation. I love that word. I'm going to use it a couple times in the next hour so you'll know why it's buried in my heart from this study into the second hour. So he says, listen, these things were imposed on you Jews until the time it was going to be remade, until the veil would be torn and there'd be no need for it anymore, until as the Holy Ghost signified there was no way into the presence of God, thus the Holy Spirit signifying, well, now there's going to be because it's going to be reformed and a new covenant has to be remade. Verse number 11, but Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. It's the original substance. He is the high priest of the the tabernacle or the mercy seat in the presence of God, neither by the blood of goats uh, and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in, what's the word there? Once into the holy place. I'm going to stop here. And having obtained eternal redemption for us. You cannot read verse 12 and think you can lose your salvation. There is no way you get out of that. This is the bumpers at the bowling alley. You couldn't get the ball in the gutter if you wanted to. You read verse number 12. Neither by the blood of bulls and of go- uh, uh, the blood of goats and of calves, which again was a year after year after year continual, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, not the one made by hands, but the substance of the the shadow, having obtained, I love that word obtained, obtained means to find something or lay hold on something you set out to achieve. So like if you want to get an A in a class, you don't just like accidentally find it, you set out to obtain that grade. Jesus came and set out to obtain what? Eternal redemption for us. Not temporary redemption until we mess it up, eternal redemption. He obtained it. He, you don't have to obtain it. I was telling our soul winning crew yesterday, the best part about going out on a Saturday is that we get to go out and tell them it's been obtained. You don't have to obtain it. Every other person knocking on anyone's door this week, uh, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they're going to tell you, hey, you need to come to church so you can obtain eternal life. You go to the Catholic church, you can obtain eternal life. No, no, no. Jesus already set out and obtained eternal redemption for us. We cannot obtain eternal redemption for ourselves. Not even through the system God set up. Because we couldn't do it. We couldn't keep it. And it was a shadow of things to come. But Jesus did it one time. Not by priests, not under the first covenant, not under the first tabernacle or temple system. He obtained eternal redemption by shedding his blood. And you'll see in the coming verses that he brings that blood to the Father, and it's done once and for all. And it's in these chapters coming that you're going to find that that verse we used a couple weeks ago, that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. 
Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again and again. The Catholic Eucharist is re-crucifying Jesus for the sins you committed that week. Well, the good news is Jesus already obtained it. He can't lose it. He, he set hold on eternal redemption for us, and he's never going to lose it. So there's no need to re-sacrifice him. You cannot lose what he got for you and gave to you and secured on your behalf. So we'll have to stop there and pick up the rest of the chapter next week.